Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. The Green Majority is Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. We're broadcast out of CIUT 89.5 FM, as I've just stated, <laughs> um, but also many community radio stations across this country and on podcast platforms. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And we're your Green Majority hosts. And uh, we have plenty of news, environmental news stories, and new uh, climate studies and new scientific studies that have come out. And we're going to talk about Elon Musk and his cryptocurrency obsession, and him in general, as, an, as a human being. Uh, terrible indictment. Then Stefan is going to interview Lords Sanchez of the International Institute for Sustainable Development, about how to achieve a fossil-free recovery. Yes. COVID recovery. Yes. Economic recovery. That's what we're calling it. Okay. We're yep. going to recover. Uh, but first, Stefan wanted to make a, I don't know if it's a statement or if it's a tirade or what the deal is, but it's about what's happening now and stuff. And then Lauren is going to mention some stuff the Canadian government has recently done on climate. That is true. I am going to be depressing, and then hopefully Lauren slightly less depressing. Um. So what I'm thinking about is the unbelievable stark the unbelievably stark differences between the reality of climate change which will be put quite clearly in the first part of Dave's news section coming in a second and what country after country after country is actually doing. And at the end of the show by interview with Lord Sanchez uh, from the IASD details that for all the promises of a green recovery we're seeing some unrestrained investment in fossil in the fossil fuel industry and recent reports have shown that the bc ndp have actually increased subsidies to the fossil fuel to fossil fuels since they took over and i got thinking about this after reading uh a a, a twitter thread from extinction rebellion cambridge which and it was an odd thing but they did this thing where they just listed new investments in fossil fuel infrastructure from across the world in the past that have occurred in the past little bit. And after reading the first six or so, I just began to simply scroll through them to see how long it would go. And I scrolled and I scrolled and I scrolled. And there's a unique power to seeing them listed in that way, because when you sort of hear the numbers, which we have said on the show a lot, you know, billions and billions of dollars, they can, that can sort of make it seem like, they all sort of blur together, but each listed struck a different kind of chord. You, could, you couldn't really imagine this as just one massive problem, but rather of hundreds of fronts, each requiring its own strategy to combat and defeat, each being pushed by a different government in a different context, and it was, and is, overwhelming. But in this moment, I refuse to be defeatist. Because ultimately, that only serves those uh, who wish inaction. But what I, but what it does do is remind me that this is not going to be a moment won at the edges. You know, we're not, we are not, and we cannot net zero our way out of this. Uh, but rather, it requires a fundamental and radical retaining, retaining, retraining of our society across the globe. And so. That's what I'm thinking about. Just the 
the level of which we can't, we, like, institutions can't just say no new, no new phosphonoses. We have to actually do it. You know, we, like, new scientific reports can detail all of the terrible things, but until we actually start really doing the things, we're not going to get anywhere. And that will require a lot of change. And so I'm just really feeling that sort of the, the stickiness in my, in my chest uh, with that tension. But I know some actually decent things happened this week. So to you, Lauren. Yeah, and I'm going to get to those decent things in just a second. But you talking about subsidies reminded me of this conversation I had with somebody um, who is arguably more knowledgeable, at least about the sort of governmental side of like the governmental perspective on subsidies than I am. And what they were saying a few years ago, um, all of the, I can't remember if it was G7, it must have been G20 countries kind of paired off and said, you're going to do studies of the other one about about your investment in fossil fuel in, in fossil fuel so like argentina is doing a comprehensive study on canada's fossil fuel subsidies and we're doing one of argentina so like we're trading that way it was something that was supposed to be done i think back in 2020 right now it's going to be done in 2023 everybody wishes that we're done earlier but at least we're starting to get a concrete date about when we might see something anyway i'm i everybody's curious to see that report because what i learned last week was that the Canadian government's definition of fossil fuel subsidy is incredibly narrow. So if you were to speak to somebody within the Canadian government whose job it is to actually enact that sort of promise that Trudeau made about phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, the number probably isn't exactly right, but this person I was speaking to said they're under the impression that they have phased out eight of nine inefficient subsidies because their understanding of what a subsidy to the fossil fuel industry is, is entirely different than what ours is and what I'm sure Extinction Rebellions is. Whereas my perspective and yours and Extinction Rebellions is that any, any investment in the fossil fuel industry from, the, from like public coffers is a form of subsidization. And that's just not the, the framework or like the, the frame of mind that the government is going to things with. So I think Yes, you are right. We need to be far more sweeping in the actions that we take. But as activists, I think we, unfortunately, some of us do need to learn how to speak that jargon a little more and be a little more clear. Like, this is what we mean when we say subsidy. We don't mean those eight discrete projects that you'd been funding. We, we, mean, we mean all of it. We mean everything. And people listening can't see my arms, but I just <laughs> made a big circle like I'm a toddler. Um, so yeah, so that was something that was fascinating. Yeah. But that's actually not what I was going to talk about today. But sorry, Steph. Just very quickly, to one of the things I remember hearing about is that like if you actually add up the percentage of in of, uh, of subsidies that we would sort of consider fossil subsidies or, or money that goes directly to subsidized fossil fuels, a huge percentage of it is actually like making flights cheaper for consumers, mm. right? And I'm sure that's not in the list that they're talking about, right? <laughs> You know, and yet because they want people to fly in Canada, so they're like, sure, we'll make it way cheaper to fly because we'll subsidize the, the oil costs. And that's a huge fossil subsidy, obviously, but almost certainly not on the list. Just want to throw that out there. But to your actual point. Totally. Um, but yeah, to my actual point, there were two positive things that I did want to flag. Because there, there are two announcements that I think people, some people have been excited about, but the average person probably hasn't heard. And that's two good announcements last week. One of them at the G7 by Justin Trudeau. Um, and that was the announcement of an increase in our international climate finance commitment, which I know doesn't sound very exciting, but it is because the announcement they made was like in line with what activists have been calling for, which is pretty cool. Um, basically activists for a really long time now have been calling for Canada to commit to like a fair share um, 
contribution to, to a climate finance pool. Um, and this climate finance pool is something like 100 billion US dollars over the next several years. And that's, that's under the Paris Accord. And for the longest time, the climate community has been pushing for Canada to, to sort of take up that mantle, take on our fair share of that contribution, which would be something like 5.2 to 5.3 billion Canadian dollars in, in dollars contributed to that, if that makes sense. Um, and last week at the G7 summit, Prime Minister Trudeau came out and said that that's actually what they're going to be committing to, uh, which is a good thing. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that people need to stop pushing, of course, because oftentimes those, those con contributions to climate finance are made in loans as opposed to grants. And of course, we don't want to see loans going to small island developing nations or least developed states. We want to see grants because a loan just further um, indentures somebody and, and, and sort of like opens up the doorway towards um, a, a cycle of poverty and a cycle of debt. So, so we want to see the, the, that 5.3 billion given in, in grants as opposed to loans. And then there's this ongoing question of the division between sort of mitigation dollars and adaptation dollars and then you add in the need for loss and damage dollars to be added in so so definitely there is still room to push here but that was a really positive announcement that was made that announcement of 5.3 billion dollars in climate finance um and then the second one was the announcement of um canada will no longer canada the the sort of governing energy um, energy assessment body will no longer approve new thermal coal mining projects, basically because they've determined that they aren't in line with Canada's um, emissions reductions targets and, and in line with our Paris commitments. So that was also a really positive announcement um, that doesn't apply to any projects that have already been approved. It doesn't apply to any projects that are already in the works. So again, the fight isn't over. There still is a lot of room to room to improve but the fact that going forward at least domestically we're not going to be approving any new thermal coal projects is an exciting thing so so those are two positive steps forward that have happened in the last week so awesome. are were they announced because they're going to call an election soon and they're trying to win goodwill honestly probably but at least they were still good announcements Now for some news headlines. So another climate crisis tipping point analysis has been published, adding to the already long list of such analyses. The study published in Earth System Dynamics reads, quote, the Earth system comprises a number of large-scale subsystems, the so-called tipping elements, that can undergo large and possibly irreversible changes in response to environmental or anthropogenic perturbations once a certain critical threshold in forcing is exceeded. Once triggered, the actual tipping process might take several years up to millennia, depending on the respective response times of the system. Tipping cascades occur when two or more tipping elements transgress their critical thresholds for a given temperature level. For global warming up to 2 degrees Celsius, tipping occurs in 61% of all simulations. The bulk of tipping cascades is found between a 1 and 3 degrees Celsius global mean temperature increase. 
And when I say that the tipping occurs in 61% of all simulations of 2 degrees Celsius, I mean they're running models over and over again to see uh, what could potentially happen given their um, predictive modeling, scientific predictive modeling tools. Okay, so this study comes as the largest ever Arctic expedition has just returned from 389 days at sea. The scientists in that expedition found that Arctic sea ice is disappearing faster than ever before, and it may soon no longer be present in summer at all. German researcher Marcus Rex presented the team's findings, stating, quote, The disappearance of summer sea ice in the Arctic is one of the first landmines in this minefield, one of the tipping points that we set off first when we push warming too far. Only evaluation in the coming years will allow us to determine if we can still save the year-round Arctic sea ice through forceful climate protection or whether we have already passed this important tipping point in the climate system. New research in Science Advances is showing that the Pine Island Glacier, which is Antarctica's largest contributor to sea level rise, has had its melting rate accelerate by 12% over the past three years. The researchers write, quote, If the ice shelf's rapid retreat continues, it could further destabilize the glacier far sooner than would, far sooner than would be expected due to surface or ocean melting processes. A study published in the journal Nature has found that oxygen levels are declining in temperate lakes. The authors of the study write, quote, our results suggest that climate change and declining water clarity have altered the physical and chemical environment of lakes. Declines in dissolved oxygen in fresh water are 2.75 to 9.3 times greater than observed in the world's oceans and could threaten essential lake ecosystem services. I just want to say, I hate this language of ecosystem services. It's as if there's this capitalist exchange between nature and human beings, when in fact we're all part of the same ecosystem. Um, all right, so research published by the American Chemical Society has revealed that forever chemicals are used in a high number of cosmetics sold in the U.S. and Canada. Using particle-induced gamma-ray emission spectroscopy, researchers found high amounts of forever chemicals in over half of the 231 products they studied. Almost 2 million people are in a water shortage emergency in Northern California and are being asked to use 15% less water than they did in 2019. Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the United States, has hit its lowest level since it was created by the construction of the Hoover Dam in the 1930s. The reservoir feeds farms, tribes, and cities in Arizona, Nevada, California, and Mexico, and is down to 36% of its full capacity. The Arizona Republic reports that farmers in Pinal County, Arizona, will be leaving some farmlands dry and unplanted for at least a couple years. An extreme heat wave is also currently moving uh, through the drought-parched American West, with some highs predicted at close to 49 degrees Celsius. Relatedly, a report has come out of the Vermont Law School and John Hopkins, 
uh, is called Essentially Unprotected, a focus on farm worker health laws and policies addressing, addressing pesticide exposure and heat-related illness. The report reads, quote, Many U.S. pesticide protections are focused on protecting consumers, the environment, and wildlife, but not the people most often exposed to pesticides at dangerous levels, farm workers and their families. Unlike pesticides, heat-related stress and illness in the workplace has not been addressed in any meaningful way at the federal level, short of recommended guidance for employers. The drought and heat wave currently occurring in the, in the southern United States is unbelievable. And it's exactly what we'd expect, and we are expecting, to see more of due to climate change, and is already highlighting the very brittle reality of American infrastructure. And so I'm not even going to get into some of the water issues in California, but instead I'm going to go back, uh, look, and, and instead I'm going to shift over to its, it's not, I'm going to say its neighbor, but it's not actually its neighbor. Instead I'm going to shift over to Texas, where you'll remember on the show back in February, we reported that more than the report I read was more than 40. I believe the number more recently was significantly higher than that. People died uh, due to power outages back in February to the big winter storm after blackouts because they it could not handle the, the snow and ice. Well, now, due to the fact that we are due to, due to the fact that the temperatures are now exceeding over 100, uh, 100 degrees, it we are once again seeing the Texas uh, power grid failing to manage this weather as well. So it's not just it can't handle cold, it also can't handle heat. And our, and the people who run the, the Texas grid are currently pleading with residents to reduce their electricity consumption as a slate of unplanned outages sort of roll across the state. And the reason, very quickly, why this happens so often to Texas specifically you know, we, I, I know when, when it happened back in February, we talked a bit about the ways that rolling blackouts occurred in California. But the reason in California was because it, they didn't want their sort of poorly maintained infrastructure to start wildfires. In Texas, part of the issue is that they refuse to accept that resilience comes with, power grid resilience especially, but even resilience more generally, comes with connecting yourself to others. Texas is a grid only to itself. It has no connection to other power supplies, so it can't draw in more energy when their power gets when their power runs out because they've intentionally designed their system to be specifically to their state. And this is exactly the kind of thinking that will get us killed in 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 the climate changed world. Like you have to be connected to others. It is the only way to that, that resilience works, and especially is true as we expand and move. Uh, or decentralize our energy systems that, that only increases the necessary of having a broader base of, of where you can draw power. So re re resilience and relying on your neighbors is a good thing in small individual human steps and also when you're the state of Texas. Can we st please kill the myth of individual excellence, please? Okay, so that was a really good, like, well thought out response to that headline. Um, lots of facts you threw at us there. I just wanted to bring it into the world of fiction a little bit because I just got through finally reading Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, which is a book that has been recommended to me time and time again over the years. And then really, um, especially the last few years since, um, since 
the fires, for instance, started getting really, really bad in, in California and on the West Coast. And basically it's been recommended a lot because Octavia Butler was this really fantastic um, science fiction, near future, Afro, Afrofuturist author who, who wrote primarily in like the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s and then, and then died in the mid 2000s in the mid aughts, I believe. But Parable of the Sower is this book that literally takes place. And I think it starts in 2024 in California and everything society has basically crumpled because of a shortage in resources and mismanagement of resources. And the, um, I don't think they say overthrow necessarily, but like the crumbling of societal structures as a result of climate induced sort of horrors. Um, and one of them is, is fire and one of them is drought and um, heat exhaustion and heat death. So I, I don't necessarily know that any of our listeners want to entrench themselves in this content any more than they already do beyond this. I'm sure, I'm sure this isn't the only hour of during the week that they hear about news like this, but if you are interested in reading some really fantastic fiction that deals with issues related to climate change, specifically issues like this, please check out Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents series. And what's What's bonkers is that she wrote these books in like the very early 90s, late 80s. So this woman saw the writing on the wall decades before any of us did or before we even experienced it. So yeah, that is my recommendation for this week based on our bummer news. <laughs> I was actually gonna make a joke. Like when you said, we're going to headlines, I wanted to say more like butt lines because they're a bummer. That stings. <laughs> And now continuing with those headlines. So a U.S. federal judge uh, has blocked the Biden administration's pause on new oil and gas leases on federal lands and waters, saying that there was no rational explanation given for canceling the lease sales. Even though the lease sales will destroy more land and contribute to the quickening destruction of the global environment, 13 states sued to have them continue because pausing the lease sales would cost them money and jobs in the short term. The Minnesota Court of Appeals has upheld Enbridge's permit for the oil sands Line 3 pipeline. Activists who are throwing themselves in front of the path of construction had hoped the court would revoke the permit for the pipeline that runs through indigenous land. The Botladic First Nation on Cape Breton recently reached a temporary understanding with the DFO to set 700 additional lobster traps during the regular fishing season. Botladic fishers are, however, still being harassed by colonial authorities. The chief said 700 traps is insufficient, and the agreement says nothing about our colonial government recognizing our own Supreme Court decision from 1999 that affirmed that Mi'kmaq First Nations on the East Coast have a right to fish on their own terms. The Sibignagati First Nation, however, is delaying its plans for lobster fishing this year because its fishers do not feel safe on the water, and they would have to provide their own security to protect themselves and their gear from getting stolen. Mohawk land defenders recently demonstrated in Ganasadake and Oka to protest real estate development on their land. The mayor of Oka decided to change the zoning of the area to make it a conservation zone to protect it from development, but the developer might sue. 
Mohawk activists want a federal moratorium on all development in the area. Spokesperson Ellen Gabriel said, quote, All we are asking for is peace and our land back. The Clearwater River Dene Nation has put up a checkpoint on Saskatchewan's Highway 955 to take control over the endless slew of uranium companies the province keeps letting onto their land. Chief Teddy Clark said, quote, The government of Saskatchewan ran roughshod over the rights of the Dene people in this region for decades. The issuance of uranium mineral rights and granting of exploration permits and approvals of damaging uranium mines by the province all occurred without our people's meaningful involvement, participation, or consent. This pattern of unacceptable behavior must come to an end now. Band manager Walter Haino said, quote, Governments allowed destructive uranium projects like the Gunner Mine to go ahead. That is now a toxic uranium legacy. They approved the Clough Lake uranium mine to the north of us, and our people have mostly left the area due to their fears over radioactive contamination and as our cultural connection to the area was broken. We now have two major uranium mines being proposed in one of our nation's most culturally important and vital areas, the Patterson Lake area. So now we're going to go to a music break and come back and talk about Elon Musk and cryptocurrency.
Thank you. That was a song called Dorian by the wonderful Montreal band Men I Trust. Thank you very much, Men I Trust. And back to the green majority. All right, so now we're going to talk about Tesla and cryptocurrency. These are some paragraphs written by our contributor Christopher Moray uh, just before Tesla announced that they were moving off of Bitcoin and embracing the Dogecoin. So keep that in mind uh, as I read this. For clarity, Tesla itself did not switch to Dogecoin. Just Musk switches allegiances to Dogecoin. He just stated that. He said, I prefer Dogecoin now. Yeah, he said he's going to work with them to to try to green their economy, but they're not. Tesla's not accepting Dogecoin either right now to buy their stuff. But at one point they were accepting Bitcoin. Exactly, for sure. And that's what's mentioned here. Okay. Yeah. So on Tuesday, April twenty seventh, Tesla released its twenty twenty one Q one earnings report for the first quarter of the year, revealing that almost a quarter of its four hundred thirty eight million dollars in profit over the previous three months and be made from selling Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin uh, has risen precipitously during the pandemic as the global rich resort to increasingly outlandish ways to invest their money. Tesla invested $1.5 billion in Bitcoin last year, and Elon Musk, ever the tech evangelizer, announced over Twitter that the company would be accepting Bitcoin as payment for the sale of their electric vehicles. The company's investment in and promotion of a technology that is believed to generate more carbon emissions than whole countries raises questions about the logic of relying on the wisdom of the market to achieve climate goals. And it is the wisdom of the market that Canada, our government, is currently explicitly relying on to achieve our climate goals. A recent Bank of America report estimated that 75% of Bitcoin is produced through coal power in China, making the carbon footprint of Tesla's investment equivalent to the annual emissions of 1.8 million cars. This is because of how energy-intensive it is to use and exchange the cryptocurrency, which means that Bitcoin produces more carbon emissions not just in its creation, but with every subsequent transaction. So currently, uh, or at least at the time uh, when it was being allowed to purchase a Tesla with Bitcoin, produced more carbon emissions than a conventional car uh, would in its entire lifetime. The further irony of the arrangement is that all of Tesla's non-Bitcoin-related profits are coming from selling regulatory tax credits to other car manufacturers, allowing companies like GM to avoid paying taxes on producing conventional gas-burning vehicles. Here Chris quotes an article from Yahoo.Finance. And he writes, quote, environmental emissions programs around the world, such as the Zero Emissions Vehicle Program in California, give out tax credits to automakers that produce and sell electric vehicles. In addition to California, there are at least 13 other U.S. states that have similar programs in place. If an automaker doesn't have enough credits by the end of the year, it could face punishment from state regulators. Since Tesla produces nothing but electric vehicles, the company racks up way more credits than it needs uh, to meet the minimum regulatory requirements, so then it turns around and sells these excess tax credits to other automakers so that they can avoid 
the penalties. 2020 was the first year Tesla was profitable, and it was because they were selling these credits, which accounted for a fifth of their overall revenue for the year. Tesla is as yet not a profitable company without the sale of these tax credits. Given that over half of the revenue generated by these sales went into the investment in cryptocurrency, it seems that through the EV tax credit programs, taxpayers from California and 13 other states are not helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but are rather funding the expanding operation of coal-fired power plants in China so that Tesla can gamble on the price of Bitcoin. In addition, tax credits that are meant to incentivize companies to make electric cars are actually being used to avoid making electric cars. And this is being orchestrated by an electric car company. And so, to state again, of the many things the absurdity of the situation highlights, one might be the pitfalls of relying on market-based solutions like carbon taxes to achieve climate goals. Quick point of clarity in that last sentence, because a price on carbon in the carbon market that California has would create the ability to then sell a, the cap and trade program that California and Quebec has to put a price on carbon is the mechanism that would allow you to then create these credits that is then being sold back onto the market by Tesla. A, a carbon tax actually would be more blanketly placed on them and it does not create the same carbon credits. You're making a distinction between carbon taxes and, and the, car, the cap and trade system that creates the, exactly. the credits. Exactly, yeah. Um, and there's obviously, I feel like this is a conversation that has like, that brings together two of the lightning rods of the internet, which is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and Elon Musk. And I will veer into the, into the Bitcoin one right now, because I feel like we've covered a little bit more on, on the Elon Musk pieces and just drop a couple of other unbelievable Bitcoin facts that I, that I've pulled, uh, from, from looking into this. So you mentioned that Bitcoin uses as much energy as some countries, and specifically that country is Poland. Uh, it, Bitcoin mining right now on some days uses as much energy as Poland, which is 37 million tons of CO2 each year. And it's not just the carbon that we have to be concerned about, because what they're also doing is they're building tons and tons and tons of these units. They're, 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 they create special computers that can mine for cryptocurrency more effectively. And these redundant units create about 11,000 tons of hazardous waste per year, which then gets you know, dumped on, on cities in the global south. They get burned out quickly because the whole thing about cryptocurrency is that they have to use a ton of CPU. So they have to keep replacing them every year because you have to be as fast as possible or you won't win the race to get the next Bitcoin. Two quick more facts I'm gonna throw to you, Lauren. Bitcoin has also led to uh, the formerly redundant coal mines being reopened in Australia because miners will just chase the cheapest Bitcoin possible. And perhaps the most distressing one is that in, in Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Bitcoin miners are getting special access to cheap, clean energy produced by an EU-funded hydroelectric plant. And the, the plant was designed to help locals find livelihoods beyond poaching and to stop them from resorting to, to scouring the parkland for wood fuel. But instead, Bitcoin miners employ armies of computer servers, you know, rather than the people it's meant to help. So 
the ways that Bitcoin is messing with the world are wide. And I have a different thought that I want to come back to later, um, which is about how it doesn't even, I think, achieve the goals it stated. But first to you, Lauren. So when I was like attempting to do some research and attempting to wrap my head around cryptocurrency and Tesla, apparently even though they have now like cut ties and they will no longer accept Bitcoin, Tesla is still the second largest Bitcoin owner, the second largest corporate Bitcoin owner with like something like 43,200 Bitcoins or like $1.52 billion uh, in like USD equivalent. And, and so what my question, and I don't know that either of you will be able to answer, but like, I'm just wondering, are there any downstream emissions associated with Bitcoin? Like you have all of these emissions that are generated at the front end by like the quote unquote, like mining process by those like calculations that have to be done in order to like get the Bitcoin. Um, but then once say, say me, Lauren, I have Bitcoin and I purchased my Tesla with Bitcoin. And then now Tesla owns all this Bitcoin. Does, does Tesla then have to account for owning all of this Bitcoin in their like personal carbon footprint calculator? And that's, yes. that's what I don't know. Okay. The every single transaction of Bitcoin comes with a price of carbon because it all has to be, because the mining itself is the validation of the transaction. And so every time you trade and the more trades that occur, the higher the, um, the energy requirement is. Okay, so, yeah. so like the longer that blockchain, that link of that link of blockchains is, the more carbon intensive that piece of Bitcoin is theoretically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, every single. It's my understanding that as it, things get more complicated, as there, uh, it, that is that the energy intensity of every transaction continues to increase because you're you're having to validate all previous. All, you're revaluating all transactions. And so, yes, the short answer is yes. This is huge and like to your, your little bit to, to jump off to the the last thought that i the other thought that i had on it was that there's also a huge problem with the fact that bitcoin's whole concept is that it is finding a way to get out of the your regulatory banks and in helping the little guy and yet what it's creating is a speculative market that can be entirely run like the way Elon Musk currently is manipulating the crypto market, it, almost any individual crypto market, is unbelievable. If he mentions Dogecoin on SNL and it goes up by some huge percentage, which means that he easily could basically just scam people out of money by talking about it. It goes massively up and then he sells his, his Dogecoin, waits for it to drop again, and just keeps doing it. What we're seeing in the crypto markets is exactly the problems that come with unregulated markets. Like the world is not going to be solved by unregulated markets. And we're seeing more and more institutional investors who already have all this power in the world moving into Bitcoin, you know, like big banks are, are beginning to do this. And what that means is that these already super powerful companies are going to be able to move into a place where, the, where countries aren't even going to be able to stop them from finding all these ways to, to get rich off this. And like it's a disaster, not only for climate, but it's also a disaster for anyone who wants a more equitable world because it inherently in vastly benefits the, the rich and powerful. Honestly, part of me is starting to think that maybe Elon Musk going to Mars isn't the worst thing. And then we can, just, <laughs> we can isolate him on Mars. He can pull up the ladder after him and then we don't have to deal with his... BS. And then Grimes can make some beautiful, beautiful music videos from Mars. 
and she'll like, but she'll turn them into NFTs. Mm -hmm. And then that's also blockchain from what I understand. It's a whole thing. She can incorporate those beautiful, beautiful Ray Bradbury uh, stainless steel centipedes and uh, grasshoppers and praying mantises that, that that the Martians ride upon. New idea for the show. We just turn it into a Martian book club. You'll joke about Grimes, but she literally did make a bunch of NFTs of babies in space to her music and sold them for like $5 million. Was that the project that she made with all of that, with all of the public grant money that went towards her, the $90,000 in in taxpayer-funded grant money? probably honestly like a menace this couple is a menace send them to mars (laughs) i don't need them here anymore they're messing stuff up for all of us but just think about the potential cosplay of a shotgun that releases uh nanobot bees to go and sting your prey to death i mean one last thought i will say before we end the segment which is that the thing to pay attention to if i were people is the ways in which different companies or different countries are now trying to crack down on bitcoin um iran recently had to because they were causing blackouts, like they were running out of power because of Bitcoin mining. Many Chinese provinces have done the same uh, due to the fact that they are, you know, absorbing due to carbon pollution. That's that an issue is tied to it. Uh, recently, there was, I think, in the UK, they thought they were raiding a a weed uh, a, a place that was growing weed, which also, you know, stopped the drug war. But it turned out it was actually Bitcoin mining because that's how much energy was being used. They thought it was like a grow up, but it was actually Bitcoin. And so I think there's going to be something, I think that's going to start happening more and more. I think as as this keeps becoming more and more problematic for countries, I think we're going to see an increase of these countries trying to take back uh, the, that and, and stop this from being, being a problem. Um, blockchain technology has some uses, not going to go into entirely blockchain, but Bitcoin and NFTs and almost the rest, all the rest of these is just a way for people to avoid taxes and ruin the environment while doing it. And now we're going to go to a short break and come back with Stefan's interview with Lords Sanchez from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Daddy, you do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours bean green over blue in the waters of beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach, do, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. 
the tongue had stuck in my jaw. It stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eeh, 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 eeh. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was real. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck, and my tarot pack and my tarot pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you, with your Luftwaffe and your gobbledygook, and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman. Not God, but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, and the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty, I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. We're back with an exciting interview with Lord Sanchez, the author of the IISD report about achieving a fossil-free recovery. And for those who don't know, the IISD is the International Institute for Sustainable Development, where Lords is a senior policy advisor and the lead of Indonesia, uh, also and works with the IISD Energy Program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. This report begins with an assessment of the COVID-related investments that economies have made around the world, or have been making. And we've seen other reports about them when where, pe- where people, I would say, give them mixed results, I guess. So I'm curious, given that you just did a big dive in, what did you find and why should we be concerned about these findings? Sure. First, say that we, we have been conducting weekly analysis to, to track where the public money is going for energy within the recovery packages. So we've been doing that with other partner organizations at the ISD, and we've been looking at 31 major economies. So it's not completely global, but it really covers the G20 plus some other major economies. 
And basically we're looking at what type of energy is attracting the, the most funding. And so far we have seen that the, the largest part of the government support is going to fossil fuels and the fossil fuel sector. If we compare it with the, the clean energy or other forms of energy, like for example, nuclear. This is not the, the, the best thing, obviously, and we should be concerned about this because depending on where governments are putting their money now, that is going to impact the, the energy sources of the future. And uh, we are still dealing with the uh, COVID-19 crisis, but actually the, the next big issue, as uh, many people have put it, is the climate change crisis. And now we know that the IA last week said that we don't need any more investment in fossil fuels if we want to meet the 1.5 Celsius target. So public money should not go to fossil fuels, it actually should support the, the future. And the second thing also is that all this money that we have seen that is going to the uh, fossil fuel sector as part of the recovery packages is actually going on top of money that governments are already giving to the sector in the form of tax breaks or budget transfers and on other support. So last year, actually in 2000, well, 2019, that support total up to 800 billion of US dollars. And to put this in perspective, this is around half of Canada's GDP before the pandemic. So again, this is a lot of money that should be going to face the, the COVID-19 crisis and other public priorities, including climate change, right? Yeah, there's obviously this pretty big disconnect between how governments were talking about how they were going to approach this recovery with that kind of build back better messaging and the numbers that you just presented. So I'm curious, how should we understand that? Like what happened? Yeah, first, actually, we have to mention that those are the global trends, but there are many countries that have been investing and doing quite efforts to, to promote energy efficiency, clean or active transport, uh, for example, electric vehicles or, or biking lanes, or even new forms of, of clean energy, like, for example, green hydrogen. So it wouldn't be fair to discredit all those countries that are putting the recovery funds in the right direction. No? But it is true that overall, what we have seen is that the previous trends were the trends in, in terms of where governments were putting the public money are being magnified as a result of the, the COVID-19 or in the COVID-19 recovery packages. Countries that believed in the energy transition, like many European countries, are putting their money in this direction. But on the other hand, like countries that consider that fossil fuel sector was a key pillar of their future economies are supporting the sector even more. And these are the countries that are actually missing the big opportunity to build back better uh, because they're putting their money into assets that risk to be stranded uh, soon, actually. And also they're maintaining some big industries instead of helping uh, these industries to transition to, to low carbon alternatives. And then another thing that is happening as well and uh, is important to consider is that many countries are now concerned mostly about jobs, about workers, and make sure that people are not really affected by or are least possible affected by this crisis. So the fossil fuel sector goes from coal production to airlines even are big employers. So that's why many countries are supporting the sector in their COVID-19 recovery packages. But again, that doesn't mean that this is a good long-term strategy. So reconversion and transition should be the priorities. And actually, there are ways that can make sure that the COVID-19 recovery supports workers without undermining climate goals. For sure. I feel like the last two weeks with the IEA and the, the oil companies had multiple shareholder re revolts within oil companies has shown just how how quickly the world may actually move off of fossil fuels and so how quickly these assets could be stranded. And so... The report outlines five principles you know, that should be followed to guide governments uh, towards a fossil-free recovery. So could, could you tell us what those principles are and why they're important? 
Yes, the first principle is that there should be no new public money to, to perpetuate fossil fuels, and especially if it is not to help the sector to transition towards a clean energy future. Instead, and that's actually a second principle, is that governments uh, should raise money from fossil fuels, and they can do that by either reforming subsidies to fossil fuels or taxing them. And this is just to reflect what they really cost to society because they cause climate change or pollution, and that all comes to an important uh, health and economic cost to society. The third principle is that governments should also swap the support from fossil fuels to clean energy. So that is, instead of subsidizing fossil fuels, subsidize clean alternatives and clean energy access. The fourth is that at the same time that they, they do swap this support, this public support, this will incentivize private investments in clean energy. There are many available mechanisms and the private sector is already ready to, to invest in clean energy. And the last and fifth principle is that in doing all the above, so taking into consideration principles one, two, two, four, we have to do that in a way that the transition, the, the energy transition is a just one and especially considers workers and communities. And we, we have put a lot of thinking on these principles, and we consider that this is important. These are important because they allow governments to address COVID-19 recovery and at the same time meet the development goals and the net targets. Of course. And so this is an incredibly detailed report. You know, it gets into the weeds on policy steps that could be used to achieve these things. And I feel like that's often a criticism of some of these larger asks is that they don't give people roadmaps towards this kind of work. And this report very much does that. And so I'm wondering if during your research, any of the recommendations stood out to you in terms of effectiveness or perhaps something that surprised you that you, you hadn't thought of? Sure. So it's actually, I emphasize the surprising part, let's say, and that was that in fact, we saw many examples of countries that demonstrate that the energy transition can generate employment and create new businesses and boost economies. So we saw that there's a number of countries that are implementing policies that actually could seem counterproductive for economic recovery, like, for example, taxing fossil fuels or increasing fuel prices. But these countries that implemented these policies, they did it in a way that uh, they came out of the crisis even stronger. That's, for example, what we saw from the Nordics back in the 90s, when they moved the tax from labor to pollution. And actually, that helped to recover their economies and incentivize energy, incentivize efficiency overall in, in industries. Another example is in India, and that's now basically as a result of the, the COVID-19. So they implemented a tax on transport fuels to raise funds for COVID recovery. And actually, they maintain this tax and even increase it when oil prices went up. So you remember a year ago, the oil prices went dramatically down. So that's when they implemented the tax. But then even when prices came back up, then they kept it. And, I, and that had a minimal protest from, from the population. So there are ways that countries can implement policies that otherwise would seem like they will never help economic recovery. And I also say that another thing that we found quite, it was quite interesting is that the cost of renewables has really gone down in the past decades. So now the private sector is ready and has appetite to, to invest in it. And uh, however, governments still have to support with the right policies, but the interest is definitely there. That's so interesting. This is something that's constantly sort of being pushed is that you can create jobs with clean responses. But even the fact that the stick, be often the carrot and the stick, and even the fact that the stick side of these policies, like prices on carbon or increased taxes can in themselves create jobs without even the concept of that the, the carrot, which is the subsidies or other things that is normally considered the job creating part of this policy. The fact that both of them create jobs is you know quite quite exciting, I would say. So you mentioned earlier, and we've mentioned on the show previously, 
the last International Energy Agency report, which basically said, for those who, who don't remember it, that new fossil production did not align at all with 1.5 degree targets, that all new fossil production should basically stop because we have enough. And if we use it all already, it's already too much, which is something that environmentalists have said forever. But to have the National Energy Agency say it obviously is a much bigger deal. And so do you believe that this recent report might allow for governments to move faster than what you've recommended? Or might be able to move faster on what you've recommended, not then. And indeed, the report and our report, they're actually quite quite aligned and complement each other because the IA report, what it does is outlines the, the roadmap. That means what needs to happen. So what energy sources have to come in and which ones have to be phased out so that we can meet the net zero by 2050. So our report, in contrast, helps governments in deciding which concrete policies have to be reformed or implemented in order to achieve that. Again, it's very aligned. But it's true that the IA report helps governments to determine where they have to focus on. And by the way, it's also the first time that the IA releases a scenario which is consistent with the Paris Agreement. So this is quite a novelty and quite a progress, actually, for the IA. So in IA's report, it is clear that renewables and clean energy technologies have to take the lead in the coming years. So as you have said, the report states that there's no more new investment needed in fossil fuels. So as you say, it's enough. So in that sense, it, so the IA report shows that the move to the net zero is possible, but action is needed now and if we want to achieve the, the energy transition. So that will be the, the main thing that's the main message that brings to government and that could encourage them to accelerate this transition. And obviously this is, again, as I mentioned, a super in-depth report and this, this show is for the more general public. And so I'm wondering if there's one thing you'd want to leave listeners with in terms of this report. If there was one thing you'd want them to go back out into their lives, carrying with them and maybe share with their friends and family, what would it be? Yeah, we, we work on, on government policies. So from our end is that uh, people should encourage their own governments to take the right steps right now. So the transition is happening. This is quite clear, we saw in the report. And even if that transition will not be easy and whole sectors like, I mean, economies and workers, communities will be affected, the better that governments plan for this transition, the smoother it will be. So we to be engaged and, and make sure that they consider that in their political decisions. Awesome. And if folks want to find this report or keep following with your work, how can they do that? So you can go to our website, so iasd.org, and there you can, or even in Google, you can just type IASD and then the, the name of the report, because it's Achieving Fossil Fuel Recovery. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lourdes Sanchez, author of the International Institute for Sustainable Development's report, Achieving a Fossil-Free Recovery. Thank you so much for your time and have a wonderful day. Thank you, you too.